The 1980s, 1990s television series The Wonder Years evokes a sense of longing and yearning for the better days of yesteryear, in just about everyone who has ever fallen in love with Kevin Arnold, Winnie Cooper, or any other character from that nostalgia-filled television series. However, while we never were ever able to see Kevin and Winnie walk down the aisle, cementing their status as America's sweethearts, in television lore, the true story behind the characters who were behind this important television event, leaves the observer with far more questions than the producers of the show perhaps intended. For the author, it wasn't that me and the main protagonist shared a first name, my name is Kevin too, but it was the loosely structured almost poetic recounting of the stories, and lessons which the main protagonist, and his erstwhile Nixon-era suburbanites inhabited, that allowed for me to connect with a show, that I followed furtively in my youth, even beyond the budding romances which became sort of anathema to me in the later seasons. Here below is my recounting, as best I can of the real-life people who inspired the television characters. And while, theirs was a film production which was played by perfectly fine actors, for the sake of clarity, and storytelling. My story about the same series touches on some of the darker undertones of the real main protagonist, or antagonist depending on your point of view. Someone who in real life rose to become one of the most revelatory members of the early Equal Rights Amendment marches, which were organized by the National Organization for Women, and a folk hero amongst feminist crusaders, and anti-Vietnam War demonstrators alike. As with most characters who are known only by the lore surrounding them, the most concise history we have of Winnie, which is accurately reflective of her and her struggles with dependency, are to be found from two sources, hers and her children's school counselor's notebooks from when they interview them and speak about their mother, Winnie, and the official briefing which was submitted before the Supreme Court in what became a landmark child custody case, and a victory for feminists here in the United States, and abroad. Here below is as best recounted, an oral history of the real woman behind the television character Gwendolyn Winnie Cooper, and the real-life people she met, as she for whatever reason felt compelled to live the life that she lived, one which was dangerous, reckless, but undeniably on her own terms. Winnie's tenacity shines through, throughout her entire life, and it's easy to see why you would view her as a protagonist, rather than a villain. But make no mistake about it, the object of this piece is not to aggrandize drugs, or drug culture, but instead to warn people against it who might be tempted to return to previous habits long forgotten, or because of COVID-19 and the economy, decide to indulge in new more dangerous habits, in order to cope. I hope that this piece can be taken as a precaution for those who are maybe feeling alone due to social isolation, and would like to better understand the consequences of what others' actions are, or the actions of themselves. When I look back at my childhood, one remembrance that I have, about my daily activities, is the amount of television that I watched as a child. One show, which I actually think about often, and that has stuck with me, throughout the years, is my early childhood fascination with the Wonder Years. In this show, a young man, whom is also named Kevin Arnold, has what is billed as an idyllic childhood, with a young best friend, named Paul Pfeiffer, and with a childhood romance to boot, Winnie Cooper. Winnie, a fascination for a lot of young men of a certain age, was someone who was portrayed as the archetypical girl next door, the girl that all the guys would want to be with, and marry, if they knew what was good for them. The series, which ran between 1988-1993, was set in the 1960s, beginning with 68, and continued until the end in 1973, exactly 20 years before the show concludes. The main thrust of the characters, their lives, and their families, mostly revolves around coming-of-age storylines, Kevin Arnold, Winnie Cooper, and that ever-present question, does he ever get the girl? I've heard through countless other accounts of the series, that the show's main character, and his girlfriend protagonist, mirror people's own real-life struggles growing up in the suburbs, here in America. But the show's main themes, and arcs, are in fact in real life, 
far more interesting, and indeed, by my accounting of the facts, are far more sinister and darkly in undertones. To start, before beginning, I want to talk a bit about what life was like for Kevin and Paul before Winnie Cooper moved into their neighborhood in suburban New York. By all accounts, Kevin and Paul grew up in what was at that time a fairly well to do suburb in upstate New York. Their young lives were filled with playing sports, football, reading the newspaper and magazines, and smoking grass or marijuana, what was then a very taboo but popular pastime. This they would have done at the tender age of around nine or ten years of age. However, at the beginning of the school year, a young shy girl from an even wealthier background moved into the neighborhood and helped further propel Kevin and Paul down a perilous path, which would in fact lead to one of them having an untimely death, while the other would be forever changed. Winnie Cooper, or Winnie as she was known on the show, was a young wealthy suburbanite already when she moved across the street from Kevin and Paul. Her father was then a successful insurance salesman while her mother was a stern and distant stay-at-home mother. Their encounter with each other began innocently enough, at the school bus stop on the first day of school, but the similarity ended there. There, on the first day that they met, she introduced Kevin to acid, which was then a popular street drug amongst the peaceniks and hippies which pervaded the 60s. This introduction to real drugs, and real ecstasy is what fueled their romance from the beginning. This is not to say that Paul was an innocent bystander, by no means, rather Paul, who was already a conduit of drugs, and street paraphernalia before Winnie moved into the neighborhood, began to dabble in other drugs including cocaine, and heroin, and eventually, by the time high school was over, was a full-blown drug dealer and addict. While this was going on, Kevin continued his romance with Winnie, eventually getting her pregnant at least twice throughout his teenage years. For Kevin, Winnie had been the first girl he'd ever run into that acted like what he thought a woman would in fact act like. Their romance, which was primarily fueled by alcohol, cocaine, and ecstasy, came to an abrupt halt midway through Kevin's junior year of high school. By then, he and Paul had become distant, and rarely maintained contact with one another, as Paul delved deeper into drugs, and the culture surrounding it. While Winnie, who was always part of a certain crowd, more affluent, more subtle, but also more immature, continued living her life in a way that was quickly becoming clear to her parents that she needed an intervention to rehab. Indeed, while still in her teens, Winnie was placed into rehab at least on two separate occasions, at the behest of her parents. These interventions, however, were only temporary, and allowed for Winnie to keep her grades up high enough, that she was able to graduate from the private school which she was then attending. However, they didn't prevent Winnie from having, and keeping secret, a pregnancy which lasted throughout most of her senior year in high school. The following summer, after graduation, Winnie gave birth to a young boy in the back of a roadster. To swaddle the infant one, she covered his naked body in her high school letters jacket, and left him on Kevin's parents' front lawn. Afterwards, Winnie took off with her boyfriend for San Francisco, the child would lay on the front lawn of Kevin's parents' home for the next three days before being discovered by a neighbor. When the child was first discovered, they thought that the child was Kevin's. Kevin hadn't seen Winnie in some time, but the child looked like him, and though he had stopped using drugs long enough to graduate from high school, and be accepted to college at Dover College, his memory was bad from all the drugs that he had been using when he was with Winnie, and since he was the youngest in his family, and had never really seen a live newborn before, as Winnie would usually just go downstate and have an abortion. He, however, cajoled himself into believing that the child might in fact be his. Truthfully, earlier, Winnie told him she was pregnant, and what the child's name was, though she never confirmed that it was his. This information was helpful, when Winnie's parents, who were not on friendly terms with Kevin, or his family, came looking for the child in their old neighborhood, 
and demanded to know where Winnie was, and what the child's name was. For most of Kevin's time at Dover College, even though he had a girlfriend, and began using drugs again, he believed the child was his. That is until one day, Winnie showed up from an undisclosed location in San Francisco, and demanded the three-year-old child so that she could put it in a proper hippie-run school back in California. That would be the last time that Winnie's parents would see the child. Winnie's whereabouts throughout this time are difficult to follow, with her intermittently showing up on either coast of the United States, New York, Washington D.C., Philadelphia, San Francisco, Providence, Rhode Island, Seattle, Los Angeles, throughout much of the 70s. Paul, Kevin's old friend from childhood, throughout this time was progressively getting deeper and deeper into drugs, and drug culture. He eventually fell in with a gang of murderous bandits, and one day while at a lake somewhere in the American West, possibly Oklahoma, he went diving in order to find himself something to eat, before subsequently hitting his head underwater, which triggered a seizure. The gang of people he was with, including his girlfriend, watched him go under, but left after he didn't surface for a while. Paul would later be found dead, half-eaten, at the bottom of the lake. Two of his accomplices, including his girlfriend, were later found guilty of his murder, in an event which was shrouded under extremely mysterious circumstances. Also, throughout this time, while Winnie's whereabouts were unknown, she is purportedly said to have given birth at least twice, one which definitely occurred in a Greyhound bus in between Missouri, and Kentucky, which left from San Francisco, en route to upstate New York. The infant child too, which was injured during the birth, had a form of Bell's palsy, which confined him to a wheelchair for the rest of his life. He would pass away in 1997, 14 years after his mother died from liver failure. This, however, did not deter Winnie from seeking help for her child, or attempting to introduce him to her parents. She, instead of heading to New York, immediately headed to Washington, D.C., in order to meet with a new-age holistic healer who she heard could cure her son of his ailments. This doctor, prescribed to her son what was then one of the largest overdoses of acid for the child, or anybody, that George Washington Hospital had ever seen up to that time. After unsuccessfully being able to cure the child of his epilepsy, and Bell's palsy, she subsequently placed the child in a rough sack on her back, and began hitchhiking to her parents' home in upstate New York, from Washington, D.C., in order to ascertain further funding, and to introduce the child to her parents. As she neared her parents' home, and began stopping at various friends and friends of her parents' houses to sleep over, and everyone saw what her newborn child looked like, she slowly began to resent the way she and her child were being treated by people that she thought were her friends. As she neared her parents' home in New York, her brother spotted her on the side of the road, but only to observe her and the child while she wasn't looking. As she neared further to her parents' home the lights which illuminated the home from far away suddenly went all out. As a result of this, Winnie continued to walk on past her parents' home until reaching the Canadian border. Throughout this time, Winnie began to become more involved in the now-defunct peacenik movement of the Vietnam era, and the women's liberation movement, which she felt she had a hand in starting. While in Nova Scotia, Canada, she was able to find a boarding home for her child, a place where he could learn, and live the rest of his life, in peace and quietude. This at first appealed to Winnie, and since she had other children spread out on the other side of the United States, and since she was tired, she relented for a short while, and allowed for the child to stay at the boarding home for the physically handicapped, but mentally gifted. This she did for several months, however when she wrote to them, requesting that the child be placed on a bus, so that he can be reunited with the rest of his family in California, the institution declined the offer, and instead explained to Winnie, that the child was now in the custody of the institution, and the Canadian government, which excused the child from any legal ergo omnes obligations to his mother. The news at first devastated Winnie, and she was distraught at what to do. 
However, after doing some research at the library in San Francisco, and getting in touch with a legal aid clinic, it was discovered that the institution, as well as the Canadian government, had violated Winnie's First Amendment rights. But that's not before hatching a plan to kidnap her son from the Canadian boarding school, for which she was arrested and charged with trespassing, later serving nine months of a 13-month sentence. The subsequent custody battle, sparked what became a legal firestorm here in the United States. It's about this time that Winnie's now-defunct parents both passed away. Her father, an alcoholic insurance salesman, was never able to reconcile with his daughter. While her mother, also an alcoholic, who died last, remained the cold and distant figure that she had always been toward her only daughter. Winnie's case which started out in a lower court, quickly was elevated to the appeals courts, when it was discovered that Winnie had been living with her family in the United States on a commune throughout most of the 1970s. By now it was about 1978, and the case was being decided either for, or against at intervening levels throughout the judicial circuit process, in turns causing ecstatic joy, or intense grief and bereavement to Winnie, and her young family. The case really began to take on a life of its own, however, when it became a political football in the 1980 election, during the Carter administration. Carter's young, African-American solicitor general at the time, recommended to the president that the case be brought before the Supreme Court. Carter, sensing a political coup during some of the headiest periods of his then-Nassan administration, seized the opportunity to turn the case into a cause celebre, for what he thought could be a groundswell for him, and readily agreed for the solicitor to argue it before the Supreme Court. When word leaked out that the case was going before the Supreme Court, and what it was about, Winnie became an instant celebrity overnight, and a feminist icon in the process. As Winnie's parents' estate was being settled, however, it was discovered that Winnie in fact had inherited very little from her father and late mother's estate. Instead most of the money went either to her children, or her late brother's child, and his mother. The news was a blow to Winnie and her credibility as she needed the funding necessary to argue before the court. However, by using the resources which were currently at her disposal, she was eventually awarded conservatorship of her children's inheritance, which allowed her to have the funding necessary to argue before the Supreme Court. The case, which was one of the first to ever be covered so assiduously on television garnered mega ratings for the broadcasters, and eventually after arguing her case, Winnie was in fact successful in her endeavor. The court, which issued a difficult ruling, argued for her in a split decision, allowing for Winnie to maintain custody of her child, while also receiving monetary compensation, as well as a public apology from the Canadian government. For Winnie, this was a hard-fought victory which shed a light on legal custody issues both here in the United States, as well as abroad. This case, however, also shed a light on her vehement anti-war stances, her direct and confrontational approach to feminism, and her brash, and unorthodox way of raising her children. And though this didn't necessarily change her stance on the issues, like it or not, she had become an icon of the anti-war movement, and the feminist marches, which were then building up steam in the country, as the 1980 election season neared. One good thing which came out of the court case for Winnie however, was an outpouring of sympathy from people, and particularly women throughout the entire country, who viewed her as a standard bearer for women, who were really just starting out in the workplace, in those numbers anyway, and who felt alienation as they climbed the corporate ladder, for a past that they were a part of, but not necessarily in control of. This, however, meant that wherever Winnie went she was recognized, and though she had settled down from her wilder days, she was still affiliated with a lot of the same people, and found herself believing some of the same unorthodox views, and doing some of the same unorthodox activities. As her fame followed her, from one side of the country to the other, and as the commune, which she was a part of, became famous just for existing, it became clear that Winnie could no longer stay. After thinking it over, 
and discussing it with some of the other inhabitants, she packed her belongings, bought a camper, and for a time was homeless with her children. Eventually with what little money she had left, she bought a home and settled in a trailer park in the suburbs of Philadelphia. This, for all intents and purposes was the beginning of the end of Winnie's life. With no one to struggle against, except her own children, and very few friends and family left, she began to become complacent in her habits, which were already pretty bad. After an attempted at-home abortion which went horribly awry, she began to take morphine to cope with the pain. Winnie Cooper died in the fall of 1983. Her children who were still at most 10 at the time did not attend her funeral. The father, apparently took custody, as well as custodianship of the children, and moved them from the area she was to be buried, before she could even be buried. Her burial site is marked with a small marker, but there is no tombstone. Even that was fought over in court, as the surviving family members fought over the custody of her children, and their inheritance in court. Eventually she was cremated and her ashes were scattered in the Philadelphia River. By the time of her death, her struggles with the Carter administration, as well as with her parents and the Canadian government, had become a footnote in history. Her unorthodox views toward life, as well as her belief that everything will turn out right in the end, eventually proved mistaken. For her children, their mother's struggles with alcohol and addiction carried over into their lives and at least succumbed to similar struggles in their brief lives. For Winnie's kids, and Kevin, his career as a publisher in New York, and his subsequent dramatization of the events surrounding his and Winnie's childhood and adolescence, were to be found playing across television screens nearly 20 years after it all began in a show entitled The Wonder Years. This led to a brief period of fame, and even acting credits, for Winnie's now adolescent children. The show, which has garnered the beloved appreciation of so many children, and young adult fans, should forever be remembered as a dramatization of the 1960s and early 70s, and what it was like to be a young family growing up in what was then a fast-changing, and tumultuous world. For me, the events surrounding Winnie Cooper's brief life, and the people which she grew up with, only further cement to me in my life, the importance of family, friends, and relations, and the ever-growing real threat of the chaos which has been, and is currently being inflicted on American society, through the decay of the social mores, and values which ostensibly, were so long cherished in this country. There are no easy answers in this, and of course, Winnie Cooper is not the problem. But the problems which she experienced in her life, due to her liberal views on drug use, alcohol, and in part due to her paternalistic, and self-absorbed parents, should not come to anybody as a surprise. A final note on Kevin, Paul, and Winnie's parents, and their families. Their moral rectitude, was not something which necessitated the experiences that one would have in a well-rounded childhood. Instead, this stolid and transparent stoicism was seen by their children for what it actually was, moral decay, and insipidness disguised as competency. I think, that if there's one lesson which could be taken from the sort of lives which these people lived, and ended up living it's this, that there is a way which may seem right to a person. It seemed right to Winnie what she was doing, the crowd she had always been with seemed like the kind of people you wanted to be around. However, upon closer inspection, when the gig is up, and the parties are over, she had nowhere to turn. And though she found a measure of fame, and indeed cult status amongst a large measure of people, her struggles ended up bringing on her doom. It's become clear to me that this way, the way in which Winnie countlessly chose to live her life, brought her many fans and people praised her for her exploits while still alive. It seems that these very same exploits, however, may in fact have ended up, leading to her demise. Dash. 1. Possibly named Jerome. 2. Possibly named Dallas.